This episode was made possible by ExpressVPN. Start browsing the web securely with three months free by going to expressvpn.com MMI. On this episode of Meet My Inspiration, I'm joined by comedian Greg Fitzsimmons. Greg is a legendary stand-up comedian, seasoned television writer, and the host of a very successful podcast that's been going for 12 years. In this talk, Greg shares some great stories from his life and his 30 years in working in comedy and television. And at the end, he tells a pretty good dirty joke to top it all off. And now, please welcome Greg Fitzsimmons. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Minion, and this is Meet My Inspiration. My guest today is comedian Greg Fitzsimmons. Of course, he's also known as Grapefruit Simmons. Greg, welcome to Meet My Inspiration. It's a pleasure. I, uh, I like the color palette you're working with. It's really exploring the whole spectrum. Thank you. Uh, Greg, let's start off with the quick little origin story of Grapefruit Simmons. Uh, well, it's, um, I started doing comedy up in Boston. I, I went to college there and then I started doing stand-up while I was in college. And there was a club called the Faneuil Hall Comedy Connection and a woman called the club. And we're gonna, we're gonna assume she was an overweight black woman for the sake of the story. <laughs> and she says, uh, she says, who's on the show tonight? And they said, well, it's Anthony Clark, Jackie Flynn, and Greg Fitzsimmons. And she goes, is Grapefruit Simmons the headliner? It's <laughs> <laughs> a great story. And you really leaned into it too. You have t-shirts and everything, right? We got the t-shirts, we got, um, you know, it, it is, I really felt like if I was a savvy marketer at that exact moment, I would have dropped the 19 letter name, Greg Fitzsimmons and <laughs> gone straight with grapefruit. Just yeah, stuck with grapefruit. would be perfect. Yeah. Good, good stage yeah. name. All right, yeah. Greg, uh, let's go back to your childhood. So I want to know where did you grow up and how would you describe your upbringing? Um, well, I was born in the Bronx to two Bronx uh, parents. And I lived there until I was about seven. And then we moved to, made some money. Dad made some money. And so we moved out to the suburbs, out to uh, Tarrytown, New York, which is about a half hour north of there. And uh, it was a very Irish Catholic upbringing in not just the religious sense, but culturally, I think that there was a lot of rebellion instilled in us. There was a, uh, can we curse on this podcast? Go for it. It was like a very fuck you attitude to, to anybody that was telling you what to do. And I think this, you know, uh, I just saw my, I saw my father get out of his car, you know, and try to fight guys. I saw him come home with black eyes. I saw him get arrested and, uh, not saw him, but I mean, he got arrested a couple times. And, uh, and he was a big six foot two tough guy. And I was not, I was a little, I was a little scrawny kid. And so um, I think a big part of me growing up was trying to prove myself as being, uh, of of being rebellious and living up to this, this sort of, um, the, this psyche that we had, not just in my family, but I think Irish people in general, who just have always fought back and refused to be told what to do. And so I, I ended up writing a book years later where it chronicled all the letters that were sent home. I mean, I, we can talk about that. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that in a later. second, but uh, all right, Greg. So as a young kid, who did you look up to? 
Um, I looked up to my dad a lot. He was a very powerful influence in my life. He was like a life of the party kind of a guy. He was the guy that you could walk into any bar in New York and somebody would yell out fits. He was, you know, he was a celebrity because he was on a, on the, like the biggest radio station in New York, my childhood. And I just saw him as the best guy in the world. I saw him as a guy who could solve anything, who could not be intimidated by anything. And, uh, make everybody laugh, including me. And, um, and he had a very dark side. He was an alcoholic. Yeah. And he disappeared into his depression at times. But he was the guy that I really um, aspired to be. I think I still aspire to be him in some ways. Your, your father, it sounds like he was a fairly violent guy. I mean, just fighting, fighting strangers in the streets and, and getting arrested for, for violence as well, I'm assuming. Was there violence in your home? Oh, yeah, yeah. He used to hit us, too. So it was a very mixed relationship, you know? It's very hard to explain how you can love somebody that hits you, but mm. if you don't know any different, like, uh, you know, I, I think growing up where I did, everybody got hit by their parents. It wasn't unusual. Um, I don't think it was until I had moved out of the house that people like went to college that people were like, like what, your parents hit you? Cause my mom would smack us all the time. And it was just sort of how we grew up. And uh, so, so it was, uh, I think it's made me pretty nervous as an adult. I think there's a part of me that's still like when I walk down the street and I walk past a guy who's bigger than me, there's a part of me that's sort of like, like this. You know, it gets, it gets kind of baked in that you should be ready to get hit or to fight at any given time. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. <clears throat> you grew up in a pretty violent uh, environment in your home, but also the town that you grew up in and the community that you grew up in. Did you carry that forward into your adult life? A little bit. I think I, um, I think I'm very, I'm a very aggressive person. I don't back down from anything to a fault. And I, yeah. I think, um, I think it's, it's been something that I've worked on in therapy and it's something that I found like, you know, I play ice hockey and I find like I get aggressions out doing that. I've never hit my kids. I've never even come close to hitting my kids. It was just never a possibility. Um, how do you how do you think you made that switch from growing up um, and basically having it baked into you that that was the way to bring up kids? Um, yeah, you learned theoretically that um, violence in the home wasn't appropriate, but how did you make that switch as a father? Was it through therapy or, or something like that? Yeah, I think therapy had a lot to do with it. I went to a lot of adult uh, adult children of alcoholics meetings mm. as a as a uh, just out of college and. I started to have an understanding about my father and how much he'd been beaten uh, by his parents. And there was, there was other abuse to him that took place. And I started to understand that it was a cycle and that I could break that cycle. And I realized that from the point of view of a child, um, 
the parent, this figure that is responsible for bringing you into the world, feeding you, clothing you, giving you shelter, protecting you from other dangers, when that figure purposefully hurts you, mm. it really does a number on your, on your sense of uh, security and your place in the universe. And it's, uh, and you know, people talk about spanking their kids. And I just always think like, you know, it's something like 70% of the country still believes in spanking their kids. Really? And it's like, you know, just, just do a little research about what that causes in people of the, of the betrayal that you experience when your parent tries to hurt you. Yeah, it's pretty traumatic. So I, yes, so I never wanted to do that. That's fantastic. It's good that you worked through that. Um, as you mentioned, a few years back, you wrote a book called Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, which was based on a slew of letters sent to your home by school officials over the years regarding discipline issues and incidents reports, uh, enough to fill an entire book, in fact. So you, you've already kind of alluded to it a little bit, but what was going on with you at school and why were you such a difficult student? I, th I think it was, um, I think part of it was like, I have ADHD, which I take, uh, I take Ritalin every day for ADHD. And I realized like looking back at these notes that my, my mother, first of all, she would get male disciplinary reports, uh, like letters from teachers and, you know, concern from the principal. Everybody was concerned. Uh, and so, but, but it would list, if it listed like an incident that happened, like, like I had a teacher and his name was Dewey Ekdahl, Dewey. And so there was a letter that said, Greg sat in the hallway. And when Mr. Ekdahl went, walked by, he said, wow, the grass was really dewy this morning. Do we have any homework? And like, and it listed all these jokes that I was saying in front of the other kids and they were all laughing at it. And my parents didn't get mad at me. They could, there were instances where they would hit me because of it. And there were instances where they would crack up laughing and the whole family at the dinner table would, would share a laugh about it. So it was a very, it was a very mixed message. But I think I had, a, I had an issue with being told what to do because I think my parents had modeled that for me. And school is just literally being told, to do all, told what to do all day. And so I think that I was getting in trouble because I was spacing out in class. My grades weren't good. And a lot of that had to do with the ADD. And my, my way of coping with that was to be the class clown and to be a wise ass because I didn't feel smart. And it was a way that I felt like in control. Well, not just the class clown, but you were kind of getting encouragement from your parents and you were getting, um, they were paying attention to you in a positive way um, because you were being funny. Do you think that that is why you kind of got into comedy or why, why you were funny at a young age because you were gaining positive attention um, at school and at home from that? Oh yeah, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. It just always felt, <clears throat> I mean, I think part of it was that. Part of it was that I was, it was a, um, it was unlocking good things for me. But it also felt like being funny and making people laugh. It's like people describe taking drugs for the first time and kind of knowing they were going to be addicted to it for the rest of their life. Yeah. And I can remember feeling like that about making people laugh. Do you it remember felt, a specific point? Uh, yeah, when I was in like uh, fifth grade, there was this other kid named John Yerzak. 
and he was a goofball and we were not good athletes. So like at lunchtime, the other kids were playing kickball and stickball and we, we were just not good. And, and also having ADD, it's very hard to play sports because mm. you start spacing out and all of a sudden the ball gets hit to you and you're not paying attention and you're not alert. And so we used to uh, sit, there was all these girls and they would sit on the steps and eat lunch. And we would stand at the bottom of the steps and we would do comedy routines. We would do routines from the Muppet show. You know, we would sing songs from the Muppet show. We would do commercial parodies where we'd act out commercials. We did uh, bits from the 2000 year old man with Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks. We, uh, we made stuff up and it was very absurdist. A lot of it was very silly. And we got laughs and I can remember thinking like, it wasn't about picking up the girls because I think we were a little young for that. Yeah. But, it was that but it was that these girls who we were used to seeing stare at the jocks, you know, it was all about being tough and being good at sports. Suddenly they were giving us the attention. And I think cracking the code of doing that with kids my own age, you know, cause when you're a kid, you can make your parents laugh, but to make your, to make kids your own age laugh, uh, it really like, it really did. It felt like a drug. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned a few of the, uh, the influences that you had at that early age, but who, who were the big influences um, comedically? Uh, maybe you didn't even realize it at the time, but who, who were you watching? Who were you listening to um, that you think influenced your comedy early on? Well, I think Peanuts, the comic strip, early on the character of Snoopy created like almost an archetype for who I thought was funny for the rest of my life. It started out with Snoopy and then it was Groucho Marx and it was comedians later on in life um, like Bill Hicks who didn't really give a shit. It was always about um, being cool not being validated from the outside hmm. and kind of being tough. And, you know, I think Bugs Bunny also, they're all that, they all have these elements. Yeah. And, and I was obsessed with Peanuts as a kid. I just had every Peanuts comic book and I've read them over and over again. And then um, I think that Mel Brooks was also that, that type. I mean, this guy who just, uh, you know, was, would not be told that he wasn't the smartest guy in the room. You know, it, it was always about being funny, but being, but not having to show that you were the funniest guy in the room, but everybody just kind of got it. Makes sense. Uh, you attended Boston University and while in Boston, you started doing stand-up comedy. Um, how rough were the early days for you in the Boston comedy scene? Well, I got beat up on stage one night I was uh, I was on stage and it was a it was a Jewish singles night. It was a like a you know before there was Tinder and J Date and all that. They sometimes the comedy clubs would have a singles night, and this was a Jewish <coughs> singles night. And so all these girls come in, and you know these are like Japs from Long Island with the hair up and the potato chip clip and the oversized sweatshirt and lots of makeup. And then the guys were all like you know pre med students from Harvard and BU. And they all came into this club called Stitches. And then this guy wanders in and he's Israeli. 
and he's a, he's a cab driver from Israel, and he's just moved over here, and he hears that there's a Jewish singles night, so he's going to go meet a Jewish woman, you know, maybe make her his wife. And so he comes in, and he sits in the front row by himself, and he realizes very quickly as he talks to these girls, they're, they're, the last guy they're interested in is a cab driver who's actually from Israel. They want a rich guy who's from Annapolis, Maryland, whose father's a lawyer. And, and so, uh, so he's got a bad attitude now and he starts heckling me. And so I'm, I'm shitting on him. He's heckling back at me. It becomes a standoff. And then finally his like Middle Eastern machismo kicks in and he looks at me and he says, nothing more. And then I said, yeah, let me know when your friends get here. And he just gets up, fist clenched, gets on stage, comes at me. And I've got the microphone, which is, you know, one of these old school microphones with like the steel mesh on the top. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. a it's like a weapon from Game of Thrones. And he comes at me and I, I hit him across the, the forehead with the microphone and he's got blood coming down his face and he gets me in a headlock and he starts doing some Krav Maga Israeli military shit. Yeah. And he's like spinning me around by my head. And I remember my legs were kicking tables and people were diving out of the way and People are cheering, and um, and then finally, like the the bouncers come up on stage and they drag the guy out. My neck is completely tweaked; I can't move my neck. And so the show stops, obviously, and they set up the tables. They buy everybody new drinks, and then the the club owner Harry Conforti is standing next to me in the back of the room, and he goes, "Okay, Fitzsimmons, you got five minutes left." And they send me back up on stage, and so I walk on stage, and it's Boston, so. The, I get a, I get a standing ovation because it's my first standing ovation because they'd rather see a fight than a comedy show any night in Boston. Put them both together and that's a perfect night. It's a perfect night. <laughs> and so, uh, and you're getting laid, you know, they're all getting laid. And yeah. so they, uh, so they give me a big round of applause and then they finally calm down. And I looked at them and I go, all right, who's next? <laughs> like I hadn't just gotten my ass kicked in front of 250 people. Perfect response. Um, so of the other comics in Boston at the time, who really made an impression on you, either in their comedy or perhaps somebody that was kind of a, like a role model or somebody? Uh, there was a mentality in Boston that fed right into this Snoopy, Groucho Mark. There was guys like Don Gavin and Steve Sweeney. Don Gavin in particular was a guy who just had it. He just was funny poured out of this guy. And he wasn't the guy that was like jumping up and down and acting crazy. He just would let, he would just sting people. He was roasting everybody and he was self-deprecating. And he just had this tough guy attitude when he was on stage where he would walk on stage with a drink and he would, and he would pull out the stool and he'd sit on the stool. You know, there's 350 pe rowdy people. Everybody's up there trying to match their energy. Everybody's trying to like, play to the back of the room and, and kill. And Don would go up there with a, a dirty shirt on, pull out a stool, sit down on it, sip, sip his drink, and just, and just, just roll out these one-liners and these little, these little bits. And if they didn't work, he'd go, eh. He'd look at his watch and go, all right, I got 10 more minutes. But he would crush more than any of the, those other acts. He would destroy and and drunk and he was drunk all the time these guys were doing coke and i remember he came off he came off stage one time and one of the younger comics said uh 
Mr. Gavin, you um, you repeated the same joke twice. And Don just looks at the kid and he goes, record six. <laughs> I guess you probably learned a little bit from him because he, he, he might have been one of the few people that wasn't trying to match the energy, like you said. He was just kind of low key, but still killing, right? Yeah, but that was a, that was a very Boston attitude. There was a, an attitude in Boston that the, the crowd did not have the power. And the good Boston comics, the guys like Mike Donovan and Kenny Rogerson, these guys all took, they took the stage and they owned it and it was theirs. And they, you know, a lot of Boston crowds had this attitude of like, I'm just as funny as you, prove it. Prove you deserve to be up there with the microphone. You had and to. these guys, these guys did it without, without trying. They just were, they just, they were the guys. And then Louis CK was a guy who had started a few years before me, even though I think he's actually younger than me. He might be a year. He started when he was like 19. Yeah. And, and he was a guy that um, didn't give a shit. Like he did, he did jokes that were absurd. Like nobody else was doing these kinds of jokes. He was like, you know, he, he was like acting things out and making noises and doing absurdist kind of stuff. Um, and, and he was doing really well. And then when he started to headline in Boston, I can just remember one night I was opening for him and he, he gave me a ride. We were going out of Cape Cod from Boston. And so he picks me up in this like 68 Mustang that uh, it was a convertible, but the top was ripped. And he had just gone to Tower Records and he had shoplifted a bunch of cassette tapes. And I remember he put in um, Diamond Dogs by David Bowie. He popped it in, cranked the stereo. And, and he told me he had no papers on the car. And I don't even think he had a driver's license. And he drove like 85 miles an hour down to the Cape the whole way, crushed, destroyed, and drove back. And I was just like, this guy's just cool. This guy doesn't give a fuck. And then throughout my, my life, he has always been a guy that when I first moved to New York, he had already, he was already, he was the king of the clubs in New York. And he, he got me in at all the rooms and then coming out to LA, he, he got me my first writing jobs and he was just always did it without playing by the rules. And he always did it without looking like he was never asking anybody for something. He was just, making his short films the way he wanted to make them. Yeah. Um, not going to college, you know, his, his mother had money for him for college <laughs> and he used it to make a film instead. And I just always admired his, the way he led his, his life and the way he led his career. And it, it definitely inspired me to not fall into that trap of taking the same steps that have been taken by everybody else because I realized there's no, nobody's ever made it the same way. Everybody, you know, one guy starts off and he's doing clubs and then all of a sudden he gets booked in colleges and then he starts using props and then he moves to New York and he starts booking commercials to pay the rent while he's doing stand. Like you gotta, you gotta find your own way and what turns you on and what, what keeps you feeling um, authentic. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's stay in the early days a little bit for, for a few more minutes. Um, you just talked about getting beat up on stage, which is a pretty bad gig. Um, but early on in those, uh, those days in Boston and maybe early on in New York, you had to do some less than ideal gigs to kind of make ends meet or maybe to get more stage time. What's, what's one of the worst gigs from those days? I mean, worse than getting beat up maybe, I don't know. Um, 
I once got booked to do a wedding at the Waldorf Astoria, which is like the nicest hotel in New York City. Yeah. And and it was this really ritzy wedding and I got booked and uh, I thought this is crazy that somebody would want to come but this is when comedy was so hot. This was like 1994 yeah. and there was this comedy boom going on and every comedy, 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 every Chinese restaurant had it. Every, you know, uh, convention had a comedian perform at their dinner and, and so these people decided they wanted a comedian at their wedding. And it was like a real, you know, fancy linen tablecloth and, you know, giant, every table had like a giant bouquet on it. And the waiters were all in tuxedos with the, you know, the, the napkin over their arm. And it was all, and, and, the, and the, the groom was probably 70, 75 years old. And the bride was like a 27-year-old Asian woman yeah. who didn't speak good English. So the daughter of the groom says to me, he loves it when you make fun of him for having a younger wife. So really focus on that during your stand-up. Just like make fun of them for being such an odd. I say, all right, that sounds easy enough. And so I go up and I'm doing jokes about how is this your is this your nurse? Is this your wife? And so, and, and it's dying. I'm getting no laughs. Nothing. The guy looks pissed. The only person laughing is the daughter who's standing in the back <laughs> and she's with her sister and the two of them are laughing. And I realized when I get off stage, they're so mad about this marriage because that's their money. That's uh, their inheritance. That's going to this girl. She was pissed. And so they, they set me up. The whole thing was a setup. That's and, crazy. Yeah, but I got paid. I don't know what they paid me—a few hundred bucks—and I was on my way to the next club. I remember no, that I had, I was doing like a bunch of shows that night because you would go from club to club to club because, you know, you'd you'd only make, you know, 20, 30 bucks a club. Yeah, so, so three yeah, three hundred's a pretty good four, gig. Five six shows, and I remember, yeah, yeah, and it was like, stand up New York, eight o'clock comic strip live 845 waldorf astoria 9 30 <laughs> comedy selling 10 15 what a life <laughs> uh well greg you're not doing those gigs anymore you've become a very successful and respected stand-up comedian <clears throat> but i want to know what's your process for developing a bit uh or a set or even an entire special um how do you do it what's your process um you know, I've been I've been doing it for 30 years and I really don't have one. I, I work um, sometimes a joke in a perfect world. And I think the I think the bits that that I feel the best about and that I think people remember the most are when I have. You know, like I read The New York Times and then I. There's an issue in there that I feel passionate about and that I feel like I have something to say about. And then I start figuring out what the bid is. And that, and that takes the longest time because getting from making a point to a bit that usually has a lot of steps to it. That's usually a longer bit when it's like that. Are you and just you doing, finish are you doing it, it mostly in your head or are you writing it down or are you no, write it, write it, write it, write it, keep writing it, keep writing it, long hand, pages and pages. And then you go back and you grab a line here and a line there and then you bring it on stage and it never works. When you do it that way, 
it never works. And never. and it can take, I'm not exaggerating when I say it can take years to come up with a bit that way. So in a perfect world, that's how I write my whole act. And it's an act that's all like, you know, uh, substantial and, you know, informed. And then you have other jokes where a line comes to you and it's like this little gift from God. You might be on stage riffing one night and you say something off the top of your head and all of a sudden you go like, oh, that's going to work for me for the next two, three years that I continue to do that. And you just know it right away. And so you have to do the honest work. You have to try to write that bit out of the New York Times. That's your job. And you aspire to be that kind of comedian. But then I've also been like, I've always thought that George Carlin kind of nailed it by doing whatever he thought was funny. You know, he did, he would do like a really insightful bit about the Catholic church and, mm. um, and then he would do a fart joke that yeah. was just as funny. And I, I tried to never have um, a, a sort of shame about doing a joke that I thought was dirty because I'm, I, I can be a very dirty comedian, yeah, but I never, I, I never think of it as dirty. I just think of it as this is what makes me laugh. And so this is what I feel like talking about on stage. What also makes me laugh is doing a bit about how Americans take water for granted and that we're a spoiled rich nation and third world country. And so I start there and I come up with a bit out of that. But, um, you know, when you're doing a Friday night late show in Cleveland and the room's half empty and they're drunk and you're trying to do a bit about socioeconomic, you know, natural resources and they, and they, they go, yeah. yeah. And then you go, and you go, I sharted last week and, they, <laughs> and they're back and they're with you. And so I don't know. I've always thought that um, it's like a knife ways. fight. Yeah. It's a knife fight. You know, it's like, Doing stand-up is always like, what do you got? What tools do you have? And use whichever ones you can and start high and see where you end up. Uh, Greg, you're not only a stand-up, but you have a, a podcast that you've been doing for, how long have you been doing your podcast? Long time. I think like 12 years. 12 years, yeah. You're one of the earlier uh, people in podcasting, I think. Uh, Fitz Dog Radio. Um, it's closing in on a thousand episodes. I took a look, it's around 900 or something like that. Uh, it's a great podcast. It's an impressive run. Um, but I'm curious, is there a show that stands out to you? Um, perhaps one that you're really proud of, or maybe one that had a big impact on the audience? Huh. It's a I lot mean, of shows for to me, Yeah, I mean, on a personal level, uh, Carl, Carl Reiner was really a big deal for me. And, and I couldn't believe I, I booked him, but he had a he had a book coming out and one of the pub his publicist was nice enough. It was a publicist that I had booked a lot of their guests over the years. And sometimes yeah. it was not somebody that was really on the radar, but I would try to promote. And so I think they were kind of doing me a favor. And so I read, he has three different autobiographies. So I read them all. And of course, like I knew every line, me and my father used to listen to 2000 year old man. And then me and my son, uh, when he was little, he used to play backgammon and listen to 2000 year old man. And he, he loved it. And I just always thought, you know, just the jerk and like everything he'd ever done and Dick Van Dyke. And he was just such a legend to me. And then when he came on, I just like, I was never more prepared for a podcast in my life. And I was never, and I never felt more like a guest um, showed up for a podcast the way he did. He was, he was funny. He was like um, recalling stuff from like the war, you know, when he was a soldier and he was like, 
he was just very generous and uh that yeah so that that was probably the most special one that i've ever and, done and he didn't let you down right people say don't meet your heroes but in that case yeah i know i know i i believe in that too i believe like this guy even though that doesn't look like bruce springsteen that's bruce springsteen up there and i had a chance to meet him one time and uh and i didn't do it i was like nope he was, have you met have you met other heroes of yours? You don't have to name names, but have you met other heroes of yours that have let you down? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think so. Um, well, Gary Shandling, yeah, Gary Shandling did. He was a guy that I absolutely loved, and he's I a, he's I, a complicated guy, though, right? Yeah, he was a very complicated guy. He had real demons, and he didn't have a great reputation, but. I finally went into a green room. We, I was working at a comedy club and it was a, you know, a showcase room down in Hermosa beach called the comedy magic club. And uh, he was sitting in the green room because it's it, so there's like, you know, eight comics all go on the show. So you all sit in the green room together and they serve you a meal and you hang out. And I came in and I was like getting, getting my courage up to say hi to him. And he was sitting there and I finally walked over and I said, hi Gary, my name's Greg Fitzsimmons huge fan and, and he goes yeah we've met before but he said it like he goes yeah we've met before and i was like no i i would remember that there's no, and he's like no we did and then he just looked away and i was like all these comics are watching me so i was humiliated i was hurt and so i walked out of the room and then maria bamford came right out and she just walked up to me and she goes it's okay i saw i saw what happened i saw it and we just started laughing. But it hurt you at the time. <laughs> it did, it hurt me. But, you know, you come to expect that. You know, sure. it's, uh, comedians are complicated. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so Greg, you were previously a writer and producer for a few years on the Ellen DeGeneres show. Uh, you won a few Emmy awards, I think, on the show as well. Um, this year, there were some rough accusations about her and the, the working environment behind the scenes. What was your experience like working there? You waited this long into the interview to ask me that question? <laughs> Is it a pass? <laughs> well, I mean, technically, I, si I signed a non-disclosure agreement, which uh -huh. they really enforce. But I will say that um, at first, it was a really exciting. I mean, Ellen had been one of my favorite comedians. She really yeah. is a, a great, great comic. So when I heard she had a show, I was excited to write for it. And so I, um, I approached them. And the executive producer was a woman that used to produce Letterman and then she produced the Kilbourne show. And so she'd booked me a bunch of times to do stand up. And then the head writer, Karen Kilgariff, was a good friend of mine. So I really just needed to put a good writing sample together. And I did, and I got hired. And the whole atmosphere was so exciting because Ellen had been, she'd been sort of kicked out of show business for a bit. Mm, yeah. And she was, she was very grateful and humble to be back. And so it was really like everybody rolled up their sleeves and we sat in our office a lot and we just riffed and had fun. And, and then, um, and it really, and then the show became a hit and, uh, and then things got not so good. Sometimes yeah. success is not the best thing for people. Yeah. It's a good point. Can go to their yeah. head and no further comment, right? No further comment at Fair this enough. time, sir. I Fair feel enough. like I should have my agent whispering in my ear right now. Like, uh, <laughs> Like I'm at a mafia hearing. 
All right, we'll move on to something more positive. Uh, you recently wrote for an HBO show called Crashing, which aired from 2016 to 2019 for three seasons in total. Uh, Crashing starred Pete Holmes as a semi-fictionalized version of himself as he tries to find success in stand-up comedy in New York City. Uh, the show's executive producer was also Judd Apatow, a guy that everything he's involved in seems to turn out so well. Um, I watched every episode of that show. I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was really well done. Um, what was it like for you behind the scenes working with Judd and the other writers on the show? It was one of the good ones. You know, you, I've written on a lot of shows and there's, and there's shows where it's, it's really like, you know, you hate to complain because writing on a TV show is a dream for so many people. And it's very, it's very well paying and you get treated great. Um, uh, but there's, there's a lot of them where you, you want to quit the whole time. And this was one where it was like, you know, Pete's energy and, and, and Judd's energy in the room was just, it was very loose. Um, I think part of the reason I was hired was because I have so much experience, real life experience as a comedian. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. they would mine me for stories. And so a lot of the writing room was just kind of regaling people with like, like getting beat up on stage in Boston, like just telling stories like that all day. And then sometimes you'd say it and then Judd would be like, put that on the board and that would become, and I, you know, and there's, there's stories and episodes that are right out of my life saying things that really happen, you know, not whole episodes, but like, you know, little vignettes, little beats, little jokes that are, that are straight out of the, the life of, of, uh, of the different writers in the room that were comedians. Um, and then I was one of two writers would then go on set. We'd go to New York for like three and a half months and we'd be on set to punch stuff up um you know make last minute changes and be around and then that was a blast because i'm from new york and it was great to be back there and and it's exciting to be on a set you know we were always on location we would be in greenwich village at three o'clock in the morning shutting down mcdougall street and homeless people are coming by and drunks are walking by and you're trying to shoot a scene and you got you know 75 teamsters with cameras and that, um, that probably and added it, a little flavor to the show though Oh, totally did. Totally did. Yeah. I mean, I think Judd liked throwing us into the belly of the beast. He always enjoyed that chaos. And, uh, and we got to work with a ton of really good comics, Colin Quinn and people that, people yeah. that you were at, Dave Attell, Jim Norton, like all these people that you would love to see, Amy Schumer. And so you'd get to spend the whole day and you'd kind of help them come up with jokes. Like I wrote, I wrote an episode for Bill Burr. And so I got to spend, you know, a week sitting around just, making each other laugh and it was it was pretty it was pretty good gig and you're getting paid for it too that's pretty awesome yeah yeah all right greg <clears throat> so you've been in comedy for decades as we we've discussed um but you're not really a joke type comic um, you mentioned those that just kind of come to you once in a while um but i'm sure you've got a few jokes rattling around in your head from over the years so right now off the top of your head what's the absolute filthiest joke you can come up with no pressure filthiest joke um all right here's one it's not that filthy but it's dirty it's dirty right. um this uh guy's at a bar and he's shit-faced and he's standing he's standing next to this other guy and they're just they're just doing shots of jack daniels and after a while the guy uh he throws up doesn't even project of up just vomits and it falls on his shirt and the guy just looks down and he goes oh my god what am i gonna do I got to go home to my wife. And the other guy goes, don't worry about it. Give me $20. Guy gives him $20. He sticks it in his shirt pocket. And he goes, you get home. 
and you say, I was at the bar, this drunk next to me threw up on my shirt. He gave me, look, he gave me 20 bucks to dry clean it. And then, uh, and then the wife looks at him and, uh, and he go, he, she goes, you just pulled a hundred dollars out of your pocket. And he goes, he shit my pants. <laughs> That's awesome. That works. All right, Greg, this has been great and uh, a great and entertaining talk. You always bring it. You're an inspiration. It's been great to hear about your inspirations and your life stories. Thank you, Greg, so much for joining me today on Meet My Inspiration. Hey, my pleasure, man. Good luck with the new podcast. Sounds like you're getting some really good guests and uh, I wish you luck. Including you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Greg. Many thanks to Greg for a fun and insightful reflection on his life and career. To keep up with Greg, check out gregfitzsimmons.com for his latest tour dates and podcast episodes. Fitz Dog Radio is also on all podcast platforms and his book, Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, is available at Amazon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Meet My Inspiration, and I hope we've been able to inspire you too, even if just a little. Sometimes that's all it takes to make great things happen. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like broadcasting to the world everything you do online. Here's how to protect yourself and get three months for free. Did you know that your internet service provider knows every single website you visit? And what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. ExpressVPN works on all devices, phones, laptops, even routers, so that everyone who shares your Wi-Fi is protected too. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is super easy. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by TechRadar, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com MMI, and you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash MMI.